Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane, episode 132, coming to you live from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm currently outside walking around our Airbnb so I don't annoy my roommate, Daniel McFadden. Uh, Zach Sterniolo is out getting his hair cut. Uh, didn't want to annoy Daniel. But welcome to episode 132, everybody. I'm glad that you are here with me. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Ryan Ellis, and we got another cracker in the can for you. Julie Giese, president of Phoenix Raceway. I felt that that was pretty topical, given that it is the championship for this weekend out in the Valley of the Sun, of course. Cannot wait for you guys to hear my chat with her. A little bit shorter than my usual chats, but that's partly because she's a busy woman, I'm a busy man, and we have a lot to talk about when it comes to Martinsville and previewing the championship four. Martinsville was insane in the membrane. Insane in the brain. It was nuts. I can't wait to talk about that with you guys. But before we do any of that, we got to throw it back to a driver who had one of the most iconic paint schemes of all time, has had a lot of good runs throughout his career, a Northeast native. You like what I did there, Dad, for you? Here is Papa Siegel with this week's Wayback segment on a familiar name in one of the most iconic races in NASCAR history. Thank you, Dube, and welcome everyone to episode 132. Today we turn our Wayback lens on the winner of one of NASCAR's greatest finishes. Ricky Craven piloted the 32 car for 133 of his 278 NASCAR Cup races. You might recall that cool Tide Ride livery on the car back in the early aughts. That's the early 2000s to you, Doof. He drove for Cal Wells' PPI Motorsports team. They were a racing super team that fielded cars in NASCAR, the Splinter IndyCar Kart Series, as well as for off-road races. You might think of Wells as an early 2000s version of Chip Ganassi. Both of Craven's two cup wins came in the 32, and one of them was especially noteworthy. In the March race at Darlington in 2003, he went back and forth with Kurt Busch for the win, ultimately leaning on each other down the front stretch to take the checkered flag by two thousandths of a second. That's .002 of a second. It was the closest finish in NASCAR Cup history and still is viewed by some as the greatest finish ever. Craven's victory that day was the last for a Pontiac before that brand exited the series. I always thought Craven was a greater wheel man than his stats seemed to show. He won in every series he raced in, including ARCA and all three of NASCAR's truck, Xfinity, and Cup circuits. Craven also became well-known for two horrendous crashes he survived. One came at Talladega in 1996. He went airborne and was T-boned when his car came back on the track, breaking his back 
and giving him a severe concussion. In 1997, at Texas, a practice crash left him with another severe concussion and forced him to miss the next two races. They were different times, my friends, and head injuries weren't viewed with the same degree of care back then, so I'm not sure he ever really fully recovered. After he hung up his driving shoes, Craven had a successful run as a race commentator for ESPN during their years covering the sport, and later for Fox. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duke. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, Ricky Craven is one of those good guys. Uh, also, if you hear some uh, ambient noise, that it's just a dog barking in this uh, Airbnb neighborhood. Uh, anyways, Ricky Craven, one of the good guys, one of the really nice guys, always had incredibly great perspective whenever he was on TV or on camera talking about the sport. So I encourage you guys to read up about him if you want to do some more deep diving after my dad's way back segment. And dad, as always, thank you so much for the way back segment. And thank you for driving me to the airport this morning. Love to have you as my chauffeur. Appreciate you. Let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old fashioned. I'm going to try to taper it a little bit because I'm literally in a foreign place that I don't know anybody here, but uh, Martinsville cut off recap. I don't think the dog liked my reggae tone. Yeah, the dog is actually getting, oh no, he's looking at me right now. Hey dog, want to say hi? Okay, there you go. I hope you guys can hear that. Uh, Man, that race did not disappoint, did it? Incredible action in all three races, at least almost. We'll talk about it. Let's start as always with the Cup Series. Alex Bowman spins Denny Hamlin. Chaos ensues from that point forward in those last few laps. Man, Denny was not happy with Bowman. Bowman does not care. I think it was pretty obvious that it was unintentional. Denny thought otherwise. I think he did. He shows his displeasure on the front stretch, calls him names on TV, drops some F-bombs, calls him a hack. But at the same time, four wins for Bowman, two for Hamlin. That's a pretty good hack if you ask me. Alex Bowman, man, he does not care, though. He gets the win. Again, his fourth win of the season, a big win for him on an iconic track. And, man, oh, man, he had to get his hands dirty to do it, and he didn't like to do it that way. But a win is a win, and he'll take him any way he can get him. Extremely happy to be able to to get a fourth win for the Ally 48 this year. Uh, It's been a rough couple months on us since we started the playoffs, and to come here with such a fast race car and uh, the capability of of winning is, is awesome. Obviously, hate that we got into the 11. Uh, unintentional, I just got loose underneath him and, and spun him out. So I'd be mad too. I get it. Um, but he's been on the other side of that enough to, to understand. Um, glad to, uh, to come out of it with a trophy. This dog will not shut up. Oh, my God. It's pretty cute, but shut up, dude. Come on. I think he just saw me again, so his pitch changed. So even though Denny Hamlin is a bit upset and he does not get the win, it would have been his third of the season, he gets booed by his hometown fans at Martinsville, he still does advance to the championship four. So all is not lost there. Kyle Busch and Brad Keselowski, they finished second and third to Bowman, and they missed out on advancing to the championship four. Kyle was pissed at Brad because he tried to wreck him coming to the finish line, and Kyle was saying it was for no reason because he needed to win and second wouldn't have mattered. And then he said some unfortunate language and he's required to undergo sensitivity training for that. It is just a whole lot of mess that comes out of Martinsville, but it's chaotic. It is fun to talk about and it gives us a whole lot to talk about as well. Blaney, Logano, Keselowski, and Kyle Busch are your four drivers eliminated. Somehow, some way, 
Martin Truex Jr. gets in by the skin of his teeth. This dog is absolutely driving me nuts. Oh, my God, please. I don't know how he did it because he had a beaten and battered left front fender. He pancaked the wall on the right side. Somehow, someway, no tires went down. He was all good, and he came home with a top five finish. He was even in disbelief after the race about it, as I'm in disbelief that this dog will not shut the you-know-what up. Oh, my God, please, dog. I'm trying to do a podcast here. So Chase Elliott also gets in along with Truex, Hamlin, and obviously Kyle Larson had his spot locked up. You think I should go over to this dog? I don't know if I should. I'm going to stop looking at him and try to ignore him. Anyways, I'm in like a corner in this Airbnb, and it's like wooden shed, and this dog is just not happy with me. I'm sorry for this chaotic all-over-the-place episode, guys. All right, Championship 4 for the Cup Series. It's Kyle Larson. It's Chase Elliott. It is Martin Truex Jr., and it is Denny Hamlin. But give a call to Alex Bowman, the showman, because he wins the Xfinity 500 at Martinsville Speedway. Xfinity was pretty awesome, too. I mean, Noah Gregson, he did what he had to do. He gets the win over Daniel Hemrick, who actually made a choice, essentially, to not go for the win, which he talked about at length afterwards, that the racer in him did not make the right decision. It was respectful, hard, clean racing for the most part. And that number nine was really, really impressive. How about that finish of that race, Noah? Taking the top side because winners take the top and they want the front row. And he did the rest from there. What a performance. My crew chief always tells me winners um, take the front row. And if you have an opportunity to get the front row, no matter where you're at, you have to take it. And, uh, you know, using my experience from my first truck win here in Martinsville and really this weekend of 2017 we beat Crafton on the top side here too um, on a green white checkered or I don't know, maybe there's 10 laps to go 15 laps to go but we beat them on the top side and drove away so um, no I, I you know it's really up to I asked Dave Owens what do you think bottom or top um, go second row inside or front row outside and he said winners take the front row. So, um, you know, we made it happen. I manned up and, and got after it, and uh, they gave me an unbelievable card tonight. Joining Noah Gregson in the championship four will be Austin Sindrick and A.J. Allmendinger, no surprise there. And the aforementioned Daniel Hemrick will also be joining them in the championship four. And everybody starts talking, well, you know, Hemrick could win the championship and not win a race in the season and in his National Series career. It's possible. Yeah, no duh, it's possible. Matt Crafton did it a couple years ago, but let's not put the cart before the horse, people. All right, let's just go one step at a time. And then we had the truck race, which kind of like this podcast because of this dog was an abject disaster. <laughs> Too much wrecking, no respect out there. It was not fun. I think this dog is getting closer. What do you want, man? Come on. I, I actually think he is getting closer. Um... God, the truck race was was such a bleep show. I mean, wrecking everywhere, all the time. Out of the 200-lap race, 89 of the laps were run under caution. That is not good. Friesen and Gillen got together coming to the white and the checkered flag. Austin Wayne Self and John Nemechek had their deal. You had Sheldon Creed and Matt Crafton who were getting into it. Sauter and Parker Kligerman also had some disagreements. I mean, all of it. The, the spectrum of disagreements range from young drivers to veterans to, to middle-tier drivers to back markers to front runners. This dog is driving me nuts. Oh, my God, shut up. Um, I'm not editing any of this out, by the way. This, this is what you get with me. 
The truck series was, I mean, I, I've said for a long time that I love the truck series. It's my favorite series in NASCAR. The Xfinity series has taken that moniker for me now, and especially the way that this truck series has been going and the way that these races are, I, I don't like them. I, I think there needs to be something done. I don't know if that's from the drivers themselves, if that's from the sanctioning body officiating, but something needs to be done. And I wrote about it in NASCAR Mailbox this week on Front Stretch, so feel free to check that out. And Jeff Gluck had some really good thoughts in his top five column and on DBC and on the Athletics of the Teardown. But everybody is kind of in agreement here. Like, something needs to happen and something needs to change because the way that the truck series is operating right now is not sustainable, it's not racing, and it's not, <laughs> it's not financially feasible either. So something needs to change from the ownership perspective, from the drivers, and from the top down. I think a lot of drivers had a lot of different things to say about it. I encourage you guys to go read up on all that stuff. But at the same time, nothing's going to change at Phoenix. If anything, it's going to get even more chaotic. So in a way, I'm looking forward to it, but also I could use a little break from that. Yeah, it was definitely wild, <laughs> to say the least. Um I knew with me being third, I was in a really good spot. Uh, Speed-wise, I don't think we had anything for the 38. I think he was on fresher tires than us as well. So um, I was worried if it went green. I mean, I wasn't losing hope just because you never know what's going to happen. But um, <clears throat> with that final restart, then the 16 lineup behind me, I knew that I kind of got him a little upset in the very beginning of the race. I got flipped off on lap two, I think it was. So that's probably a new record for me. Um, so... I got shoved into the corner. I shoved into the corner, and luckily I came out three wide bottom and um, pretty much just white knuckled it to the to the end. Oh, there's the dog in. I, I had a theory that if I stopped talking, the dog would stop whimpering and, and barking. But anyways, let's throw it over to my chat with Phoenix Raceways track president, Julie Geezy. It is Geezy, not Geezy, not Geist. That's kind of where we start our conversation and we go onwards from there. One of the only female track presidents in NASCAR. Does she take pride in that? Is that a source of pride for her? She'll tell you her answer. How did this opportunity come about in the first place? Well, it's interesting because she was on a dairy farm growing up in Wisconsin and then decided she wanted to get into racing on the business side. So she did exactly that, worked her way up, and she has had a lot of different stops and held a lot of different interesting roles and worked on cool projects along the way. Spent about 45 minutes with Julie leading up to Phoenix Raceways Championship for a weekend. I cannot thank her enough for giving me the time. It was so great to catch up with her and reminisce about days old in the K&M Pro Series. Before I go and absolutely tell this dog to please be quiet, here is my conversation with Phoenix Raceways track president, Julie Giese. Stop! A real pleasure to welcome onto the show this week. It is championship week after all. Phoenix Raceway track president, Julie Giese. I want to say this first and foremost. How many people get the pronunciation of your last name incorrect versus correct? Um, definitely a majority incorrect. So kudos <laughs> to you. Um, got it like spot on. Yeah. So it's Giese, right? It's not Giese. It's not Geisy. It's not Geist. It's Giese. Yes, it is Giese. You got it. And all the other pronunciations that I've heard, you've covered all of them. So okay. good job. Easy geezy lemon squeezy. Let's roll right into it. <laughs> you never heard that one, I bet. I haven't. That's a new one. Okay, good. Well, glad I can get a new one for you. As I mentioned, Julie, it's a huge week for you, for the entire sport, for these 12 drivers across all three national series that are going to have a chance to win a championship and put their name in the NASCAR history books. 
But for you specifically, I'm wondering what are the emotions? What are the nerves like? Are you ready to get this over with? Are you ready to tackle this? Are you a little bit nervous? Kind of walk me through your emotions and your mindset heading into the most important and the biggest weekend of the year. I think, I mean, there's always nerves, right? But I think for us, uh, anticipation and excitement are probably definitely the the dominant emotions for mm-hmm. our entire team right now. You know, this is an event that we've been planning essentially for the last two and a half years. When you think about it, we announced yeah. championship in March of 2019. And last year was supposed to be that big first championship weekend. And certainly very grateful that we were able to host that event um, on schedule, have a limited number of fans with us, but it, it wasn't what we expected and what we were planning for. So this is really that first big event for us. It's it's our opportunity to show yeah. everybody what Phoenix Raceway, what the city of Avondale and the state of Arizona can do with NASCAR's championship. And we're we're really excited. Our campers, um, you know, they're here with us the entire week. There's so much anticipation throughout the valley um so we're excited I, i'm i'm it's nervous energy right you just you, yeah. you can't wait to see everybody and, and start to show everyone all the work you've been doing that's what i was gonna say too right i mean like there's nerves yes but in the positive way and, and it all is redirected into making the event and the entirety of the weekend the best that it can be for the drivers the competitors the fans everybody watching at home and like you mentioned too right last year you guys held the championship but it was still kind of under COVID circumstances. You guys saw a great crowd and the energy was palpable out there, but these are some pretty high stakes. And, you know, with the money that's gone into Phoenix, I don't have to tell you twice because you were a head of that operation. This is going to kind of be the first time that fans are going to be able to get the full experience of Phoenix Raceway and the full championship weekend, which has to be a point of pride for you. It really is. And I think, we're just excited to show all the different things that uh, we've been working on. And for us, when you talked about the, the renovation and the, the new Phoenix Raceway, you know, that whole project was about taking the fan experience to a whole new level. I don't think there's a sport that does fan experience any better than NASCAR. And we wanted to take that uh, up a notch. And we try, we're working really hard to try to do that with the, the championship weekend as well. Our, our friends at Homestead Miami Speedway have done a tremendous job with the championship over the years and learned so much for them. So now it's like, okay, how do we continue to elevate and do more um, and, and make that fan experience just the best that it possibly can be? Things like access down into the championship celebrations every night, mm-hmm. uh, activities in the barn group by Bush Light, which is a, a new venue for us, getting the champion over there um, and pre-race activities, concerts, just all those different things that come together to create that really big event and that memorable experience that people are like, man, I, I, I missed out. I need to be there next year. Yeah. You mentioned Homestead Miami Speedway. It just kind of sparked a, a question just off the top. Do you get like pissed off or mad or annoyed when everybody always says, oh, I wish we were still having the finale at Homestead? Because you guys, you, you've got it one chance and it wasn't even a fair shake, you know? Yeah. No, I don't. I mean, I get it. I mean, I've, I have gone to a number of championship races at Homestead Miami Speedway. I understand yeah. why that's important and why those races and why people feel that way. I get it. I, I agree, though. I want the opportunity to show uh, truly what Phoenix Raceway can do before you make those comparisons. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Spoken like a true track president. Well done right there. <laughs> um, what goes into preparation for for the race weekend, the championship race weekend specifically, 
that maybe doesn't really go into your guys' date in the spring. And I was actually talking to Clay Campbell earlier this week about the same thing, right? A big race on the schedule, the penultimate race weekend of the entire year. He said nothing really changes besides just the action on track and kind of the palpable anticipation. But the championship race, I have a feeling it may be a little bit different just because of the sheer amount of people and the amount of interest that goes along with that race. So what goes into the title race that maybe doesn't go into the spring date? There are a few things. And I think that what we've been learning, obviously um, it is a, it is a typical race weekend where you have um, the race and you're, you've got a race winner, but not only are you crowning a race winner, now you're crowning a champion. So those championship celebrations are really a big differentiator and a big, that's what we've been really focusing on is how do we embrace that? How do we make it as special as possible for the competitor, for their, uh, for their team, for their sponsors, and then for our fans, how do we bring everybody together to let them be part of that and experience it? Um, so I think that's probably the biggest piece. But the other one that's interesting, like as we're planning this event weekend, you know, we didn't know who the four drivers were going to be that were running for the championship <laughs> right. until race week. Like you can't like there's a lot of things that you can plan a lot of different contingencies for. But until we finish Martinsville, um, you don't know who those drivers are all going to be running for championship. You said, um, you know, the Valley and how the anticipation is pretty palpable out there. Spoken like a true uh, Arizonan or Arizonite. I don't know what the proper terminology is. But how has the community, what would you say? Phoenician. Phoenician. Wow. I would not have guessed that one. Okay. There you go. Good to know. How is the Phoenix area and the greater Avondale area as well, the community, how, how have they embraced this event? Because you've said it yourself countless times. Phoenix is a big event town, Super Bowls, college football playoffs. The Suns were just in the NBA finals, right? Something about Phoenix and big events go together really, really well. And the championship race for NASCAR is no different. Yeah, it really does. And I think honestly, that is a differentiator for us. I think that is something that sets us apart from a lot of our other uh, venues. And um, I think that's the case in any sport. When you look at Phoenix and the state of Arizona, um, this community starting and led by the city of Avondale, which is where Phoenix Raceway is based, um, they have embraced this event. They did it last year during the pandemic um, and they have like, they, they've not stopped since then. And from the moment our guests land uh, in the uh, Sky Harbor airport, they're going to be greeted with uh, championship messaging. We have yeah. a building downtown that is wrapped with a large uh, Chase Elliott with the NASCAR championship weekend branding. We have crosswalks in downtown Phoenix that are checkerboard that mimic the, the um, start finish line at Phoenix Raceway. You see that in Avondale. All of the West Valley cities have billboards up that are welcoming fans to NASCAR championship weekend. The Metro is going to be wrapped with uh, championship weekend um, livery. There's just, there's so many things. Um, there's so many events that different um, municipalities are putting together. It is tremendous. Like, I feel like every day I'm, we are so blessed with a community that is excited. They want to be part of it. They're asking, what else can we do? What else do you need? Where can we plug in? Have you talked to so-and-so? And they're, they're making connections. So yeah. it, I'm really proud of it. And that's probably one of the things that I'm most excited about is just our industry coming here and, and feeling so welcome and that people understand the significance of this event weekend. And I'm sure you probably had some season ticket holders that have kind of been with the track since day one 
that have been at both races every single year. And then when you kind of come into the picture and then Phoenix gets the finale, you've probably heard from a lot of longtime fans and ticket holders that are saying like, Thank you for A, helping us with these upgrades, and B, making this track on a national stage. Now we have the season finale, and we're not just kind of in the warm summer months when NASCAR needs somewhere to go, because Phoenix forever, through the ISM days, back to the Phoenix days too, it's always been an unbelievable racing showplace and a showcase of what these Cup Affinity and trucks can do on track. So I'm sure you've heard from the racing fans specifically in the greater Phoenix area about how excited they are to have this specific weekend right here in Phoenix. Yeah, they absolutely. I feel like every day I get the opportunity to hear from a, a fan and just saying thank you and how excited they are. We had uh, a season ticket holder the other day drop off boxes and boxes of cookies. And I'm just so excited to, to <laughs> nice. get to race weekend and as a way to thank our our staff and um, and yeah, it's, it's a long time coming for some of these season ticket holders. And, you know, I said last year when we went through the pandemic and the fact that when we realized we were going to have a limited capacity, like the hardest day um, for me as a track president was the day that I had to write and send that email to our fans telling them yeah. we can't have all of you. We were sold out. Um, our fans are one of the big reasons that championship is here in Phoenix. We've historically sold out this event and they are loyal uh, they are, uh, they have so much fun. I think our camping crowd is the most uh, underestimated, um, best kept secret in racing, in my opinion, um, with thousands and thousands of camp campers on site. So uh, I'm excited for them. That's honestly my favorite part is seeing our fans and I can't wait uh, to see them all come through the gates and see their excitement. Yeah, you and me both. I'm excited to get out there later this week. Your story, Julie, is very unique. One of a kind, I might say. Let's get into it a little bit. For those that don't know, Julie grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. Colby is the name of the town. Do I have that right? Yes, yep. the home of Colby cheese. That's what I figured, right? So, of course, you work uh, on a dairy farm growing up at the home of one of the best cheeses in all the land in all of America. Uh, I don't think at that point, maybe when you're you know, a little girl growing up, you didn't have being a track president for NASCAR's championship racetrack weekend. I don't know if you had that on your radar. You were just kind of worried about milking the cows. <laughs> I didn't have that on my radar like five years ago. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, not at all. But yeah, I mean, I grew up um, in a family of race fans and um, I, that's where my love for racing uh, came from and comes from. I'm a race fan first and foremost. I tell the fans every weekend when they're here, I am most comfortable sitting in the grandstands than I am uh, standing out on that pre-race stage greeting them. <laughs> like, I just, I'm good. I want to watch the race with everybody yeah. and and enjoy it and soak it in. So, no, this is a, it's a dream. I mean, I, again, I drive to a racetrack every day for work. It's pretty special. I recognize how, like, how special that is and how blessed I am. Uh, I had two incredible role models with my parents, um, dairy farmers. Again, you don't get a day off. You don't get to call in sick to uh -uh. the cows. You, you've got to milk the cows. Um, <laughs> and they definitely showed me the value of hard work. My brother and sister-in-law and my nephew are on the farm now. Um, so I still cool. get to, to go home and spend some time on the farm in the summers and um, get back to my roots, which I truly, truly love. So let's go fast forward a little bit. Once you leave the dairy farm, you go to college at Wisconsin River Falls. And I think you were going to major in animal studies, but then you kind of ended up changing courses at some point from let's do dairy farm 2.0 type stuff into 
let's try to go into the racing realm. What, when did that shift happen for you and why did you decide to make the change? You know, obviously growing up on a farm, agriculture is what I knew. It's where my comfort level was. Right, uh, right. So animal science and genetics was really going to be my focus. Uh, I did an internship one summer in Madison and I just remember like I, I was behind the microscope like the entire day, all the time. Um, and it was inside, like, I just realized very quickly during that internship, just this is not for me. This is not what I want to do. And at that point, it was like, oh, gosh, now what do I do? Um, I don't know what I want to do. So um, the agriculture department um, at River Falls was opening a new marketing program. And so I um, learned more about that, enrolled in that program um, and graduated then with an agriculture marketing degree. And it was really the senior year in college where I was just really started to consider racing as an option. Um, and I, uh, I have a friend of mine that was racing local tracks around Wisconsin. I was trying to help with some sponsorship. It wasn't, I, I don't think we got anybody, um, but I was trying and it yeah. was a good lesson for me. And I sent my resume out to all the racetracks when I graduated college. And yep. um, I have rejection letters from those racetracks. It's fun that. to like, I have no idea why I kept them. Honestly, I said the race fan in me thinks I kept them because I had letters from racetracks. Yeah. Um, but sign, signing those letters were some of my peers. Uh, the I have one from Phoenix Raceway, which is actually signed by uh, Kenny Kane, which uh, Kenny hired me in Daytona, actually, wow. when I left Watkins Glen. So it's just fun to see full circle, like how far I've come. Yeah. Wow. And again, like you said, five years ago, you wouldn't imagine being where you are now. I'm sure when you were sending those letters and getting all those rejection letters back, which, first of all, good on those tracks for actually writing you back, because we know these days that doesn't happen every uh, yeah. all the time. But it's cool to see that literally come full circle. You have a rejection letter from a college age Julie from the track that you now literally run. That That's pretty cool. That's badass. Yeah, it was. And, and I it's so funny because I'll speak to like I was just with a college class last week. And I was telling them that story and they were just like, so puzzled, like rejection letters, really, they send those things. I'm like, yeah, back then they did. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, so yeah. It was, it's funny to see how far um, I've come and it's still surreal every day. Again, I'm, yeah. I, I drive to a racetrack every day. I feel very blessed. Yeah. So let's get into after college. I know that your first job was as an account executive and then you kind of moved into the NASCAR space and the ISC land full bore, did some public relations work at Watkins Glen. And you, you mentioned it a couple times already, you know, you get to drive into a racetrack for your job. And I think I read somewhere that the first time that you drove into the Glen for your first day on the job, you kind of had to pinch yourself and say like, wow, I'm, I'm at the racetrack, but I'm about to go to work and get a paycheck for it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I'll tell you, that day that I drove to the racetrack, I had an 88 sticker on my car. I was a Dale Jarrett fan. Um, and I'm like, man, I probably need to remove that, right? Like, am I yeah. allowed to like, I do that? Um, and so, yeah, it was that moment, like, sitting in the parking lot and realizing, wow, here yeah. I am. And then that was 2001. So, literally, I started in January at Watkins Glen. And very quickly, I think, after, like, one week at the track, they sent me down to Daytona to work speed weeks and bikes. So, I spent man. my first six weeks on the job really in Daytona in 2001, no less. And we all know what happened there. My God, yeah. that must've been pretty yeah. heavy taxing. I'm sure emotionally. It was, that was the moment, you know, I mean, again, I was like a fan and just so excited to be at right. Daytona. Just like, 
things became very real. Um, and it was honestly, again, I learned so much at Daytona. There's so many things that go into speed weeks in general and the schedule and the, mm-hmm. like you go from sports cars to stock cars to motorcycles. Um, it was a, it was a good learning opportunity all around. Yeah. And your dad, I believe was a Dale Earnhardt fan as well while you were growing up. So I'm sure that that had to be kind of a, like, wow, this is, this is really happening. Cause that, I mean, that, that day in 2001, we remember that year as well, obviously just everything that went with it from the July race at Daytona to nine 11 and everything that happened, your, your dad, you said, you know, was one of the people that kind of got you into racing along with your mom as well. So I'm sure that they probably were really proud of you for kind of chasing your dream, but also you were front and center of one of the most tragic days in the sport's entire history. That's, that's pretty wild to think about, I guess, in your first six weeks on the job. Yeah, it, it really was. And, um, you know, as, as we were, everyone was remembering, uh, the 20th anniversary and like reading some of the stories. I remember, I think it was, um, I was watching like Marty and McGee and just hearing them. And I remember Marty in the media center. I remember like, I can remember, I can tell you what I was wearing that day. I can tell you who, like where everyone was seated in the media center. Like Mm -hmm. that moment in time, um, I think all of us, like it's cemented and you remember that moment and, um, yeah, it was surreal. Yeah. So staying with Daytona, right after the Glen, you went off to the mothership, so to speak, and went to Daytona International Speedway. For I think around over 12 years, you held four different roles there, kind of worked your way up slow and steady and did great work over there. But at the end of the day, you're still a race fan. So getting to work for the world center of racing, the Daytona 500, the Rolex 24, the July Daytona race, everything that speed weeks in the winter and then throughout the entire calendar year that Daytona has to offer, being front and center for that and your office being at the damn racetrack that had to be a pinch me moment as well. It really was. And it still is. I mean, I think everybody says the moment like you drive through those twin tunnels at Daytona international speedway, mm-hmm. like there's just nothing like it. Like I still get chills. I mean, I literally have goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. Um, like there's, there's no way to explain that feeling and there's no way to just describe that hallowed ground. And, um, when I remember when we repaved Daytona, um, in 2010, 2011, I think it was. And the, the engineering that had to go into the repave because of the 31 degree banking and how you did that. It, it was, I remember thinking like, how did this, how did they do this in 1958 and 1959? Nuts. Like the foresight and I mean, the brilliance, honestly, of Big Bill mm-hmm. and uh, the vision that he had along with Andy Beek and um, it, it just, the history of the sport is so much ingrained in Daytona and that's where like I knew how much I loved racing but I learned how much I respected racing and the France family and the vision um and the visionary that Big Bill was um it's yeah it's it's hard to describe it's it's so it's such an honor to be part of that um very small piece of that uh, family history at Daytona yeah no, that's really good perspective because I mean, just like you, I'm still a race fan at the end of the day. And now that I've been in the sport for my, for a handful of years, I've kind of been able to separate the fan from do your job, Davey, you know what I mean? And I'm sure that you kind of had that experience similarly, but in, 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 in line with you, right. You learn to appreciate and respect the sport for what came before, what goes into making a race event happen. 
I'm kind of the same way in terms of just like consuming content and NASCAR and seeing how people like you help put together the championship weekend because young dumb Davies like, yeah, let's turn on the TV. Let's watch the title race. Woohoo. But there are years and so many painstaking hours, blood, sweat, and tears that go into all these different things. And you've been behind the scenes. And I know that you say you were kind of content staying there, which we'll get to in a minute, but being behind the scenes and seeing all the work that it takes from all these different departments across the world, literally, to make anything happen from a repave to $180, $180 million track renovation to just getting the green flag to wave on the race. Like, you don't understand how long and how much effort it takes to have all these things coordinated back to back to back on time ready to go to make these things happen. And that probably gives you a greater appreciation for the whole big picture as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I, again, there's so many things and I learn still every day. There's so many things um, that I've learned uh, through just different experiences and everything that does go in. There's so many things that happen behind the scenes that nobody sees. And that's that's the goal. Like if you start to see them, you're not like something's wrong. Um, and you want all that to happen smoothly behind the scenes and and have those fans just, um, you know, experience the event weekend and yeah. walk away thinking, man, I can't wait to get back here again. Um, and that's how I feel. I think in our team, we've got just the most amazing team out here. I think all of us, like the flyover and that moment um, with the grandstands are full. I think almost all of our, our uh, teammates will tell you that's one of like, that's the moment for them where they like can take a like take that second and just yeah. recognize, wow, this is. If we just we're doing this and uh, we have a, a piece of this um and and sit back and appreciate it and it makes all the hard work um completely worth it yeah so after you finished your uh, decade plus at daytona you went over to the actual mothership isc for about a year and then october of 2018 you got named track president here at phoenix raceway what, what went into that decision because i know that you kind of applied and you didn't really think anything of it you're like yeah i'll get that sure whatever and you did. So, A, why were you not really expecting to get it? B, what made you apply? And C, what was your reaction when you found out that you got offered the position? Yeah, I, I'll start with your second question. I think, um, so, yeah, like I said, if you would have asked me five years ago, uh, the answer, if I want to be a track president, the answer was no. Um, and I, I was, and, and honestly, still am very content to be behind the scenes. I like to I like the operational side of our business. I like um, kind of ideating and, and being the one to figure out how to make mm -hmm. things work. Um, and when I left Daytona and joined um, the design and development team, which was really working on a construction project here in Phoenix, um, that exposed me to a whole new side of our business, not only on the construction side, but to all of our racetracks and all of our track properties. I've always like, when you're at Daytona and when you're in the, the ISC family, you were always working with the other racetracks. You knew your colleagues at different tracks, but you didn't, you weren't like immersed into their business because you right. were working at Daytona. Um, those two years was, I got to spend time at all of our racetracks. I got to uh, really grow and learn from all of our track presidents. And the thing I learned during that time was there's no like, that way to be a track president. Um, everybody has their own style. Everybody approaches it differently. The goal is always the same to deliver the best experience possible for our mm -hmm. race fans and for our industry and continue to innovate and drive our sport forward. 
Um, but how you get there really can be how you want it to be. And um, that opened my eyes because I'd spent so much time at Daytona um, and had seen uh, just different leaders and how they led. And it helped me see that I, I, I can probably do this um, at some point, which yeah. was then um, getting into the, the, the opportunity presenting itself. Um, I remember uh, I was helping uh, out here in Phoenix because of the construction project. Um, and uh, Dave Allen, uh, who's the president at Auto Club Speedway, um, popped in and, and told me, you know, are you thinking about this? You probably like, and, and we had a really great conversation. And I, I am grateful to him every day for that conversation and that little nudge um, and that positive reinforcement. And so, again, I went through it. And it's not that I doubted my myself I just I didn't know one I had never told anybody that I wanted to be a president so here I am now all of a sudden like raising you didn't know you wanted to I know I mean like our our HR director and I laughed because she has asked me previously and the answer was no um and so here I am now throwing my hat in the ring and really for me it was at the time I'm like I want to go through the process so I can learn and I can understand what leadership is looking for um, what that looks like um, when they're interviewing somebody for a track president role. And if nothing else, I'm going to learn a whole lot. Um, right. And so if and when another opportunity presents itself, I, and I have, I'm blessed with the opportunity to at least interview, I know what to expect. And, um, and when I got that phone call saying that, um, hey, we would like you to be the, the president at Phoenix Raceway, I was just dumbfounded. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, and certainly really grateful for it. It's, uh, just over three years now uh, out here and I love it. I'm blessed with like the best team ever in my opinion and uh, a lot of momentum here in the market. It's not even like a, a little thing either, right? I mean, you're in Daytona for 12 years. I imagine when you went to ISC, you were still in that general vicinity in Florida it's not a, an easy thing to pack up and move you, your entire family, halfway, more than halfway across the entire country for a new job when you've been in this stable job for over an entire decade. So this was not just some little promotion. I mean, this was a life change for you. And, and you understood that. That kind of came with the territory. But I bet it didn't really make anything easier necessarily when you had to figure out getting a new house and figuring out this and that and everything that comes with moving. But you're not just moving across the street, you're moving across the country. Yeah, it, it definitely was a change. But again, I, I felt as prepared as I was going to be with, because of that time that I spent with all of our truck presidents. And I, I realized going into that role um, um, in 2018 that I now had a peer group of 12 truck presidents that I can call and lean on and ask questions and they were going to be there to support me. Um, so from that that perspective, like it was, it was, I mean, sure, certainly you always have a little bit of nervousness and like, okay, can I do this? Um, and I think then walking in and knowing the team here already at Phoenix Raceway, because I had worked with them over the past couple of years on the renovation right. project. Yep. Um, it, it was, it was as seamless of a transition as I could have hoped for. Um, the move was easy as, as good as it could be. Um, good. my time in construction, uh, gave me, uh, the, uh, idea to actually, uh, build my house. Um, so How about like, that? put that to good use. Uh, so it's been great. And 
again, we're in a big city out here, but it is a small community that yeah. um, leaders and from the governor's office all the way through, like everybody like wants to see Phoenix Raceway succeed and they are constantly, how can I help you in connecting us? Yeah. Uh, so it's just made it really easy and a whole lot of fun. Well, it's great to hear. Being a uh, female track president in this role is not the norm. You got you, you got Jill Gregory. That's about it. That's the list, right? West Coast, best coast, I guess, for the girls out there. Um, <laughs> is that a point of pride for you? Do you do you go to people and say like, look, I am a female in a male-dominated industry and I am a track president and I do that because I can and it's awesome and it's fun? Or do you look at it as just, I happen to be female and I am happening to be a track president? Like, is it something that you necessarily take pride in or is it something that just kind of is? It's a great question. And I think it's, it's a little bit of both. It's definitely something I'm, I'm very proud of. And, um, it's something I, I, I laugh now that I'm very proud of the fact that I'm now not the only female track president, That's right. now it's one of two, which, um, so glad to have Jill as part of that mix. And so, yeah, I mean, it is a source of pride. And I think when you look at every, the strides and the things that NASCAR has done over the past, um, two years to really move that forward, if I can be, um, somebody that can motivate or uh, help somebody, a young girl realize that they can be a, a president or they can do other things. Um, they can achieve their dreams. Like if I can help with that, it's, I feel like it's my duty to do that. And yeah. when I first um, was announced as a track president, um, at that time, I really hadn't thought about it as much. I grew up in the sport, in my opinion. I mean, I, like two years out of college, I was at an entry level position at Watkins Glen. I worked my way through the company and our industry and I have so many tremendous relationships, so many advocates, so many mentors that wanted to help me succeed. But it, I never really put a lot of thought into the fact that I was a female and maybe I was the only female in a room. Um, and again, I think that goes back to my mom as well. Like, I mean, my mom was always right next to my dad working on the farm and like there wasn't any difference. Um, and so I didn't really pay much attention or notice it, I guess, until I was in the role now that I'm in and, and it is a, a conversation point, but it's always positive. And if, again, if I can give one little girl, um, some hope and like, they can reach your dreams, don't give up on it, then. That's what I, I need to do. You're doing a lot more than that. I can promise you that. Uh, I also saw that there was a quote related to this topic, right? I think you said, I cannot think of one moment I felt like I was at a disadvantage being a female. I think part of that speaks to you, your character, your, your leadership style, but also the people at the company and the people that you have worked with because they've made it a fostering environment where there was never even a thought of gender discrimination or anything like that, that you see is unfortunately somewhat commonplace in other workplaces. So that's probably a testament to the people that you've been able to work with over the last almost two full decades. I think so. And I think, if, again, uh, not to go back to, again, the history of our sport, but yeah. again, my time at Daytona, it was Big Bill France, but that statue out in front of Daytona International is Big Bill France and Annie B. And mm -hmm. Annie B, I have heard so many amazing stories from Lightning Efton at Daytona about Annie B and and her role in creating NASCAR and the racetracks. And so you start there, and then obviously you think about Lisa Prince Kennedy, who is a tremendous role model for all of yeah. us uh, leading this company. And so you like 
you have those two amazing women that, and Betty Jane France, I mean, there's just, that leadership was already there. Um, and that's what I think about. Like when I think about um, our sports and, and not being ever feeling like I've been at a disadvantage, I, I think it's a testament to them. Yeah, definitely. Just a ton of role models uh, that just happen to be female, right? So I think that that's a great thing. And you and Jill having leadership positions, I hope that that's only the tip of the iceberg because uh, I think that I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot more women in some some high-ranking positions in NASCAR. That'll be really cool to see. How would you describe your leadership style for the folks at Phoenix Raceway? If, if I asked some of the people that worked at the track, you know, what's Julie's leadership style? What do you think they would say, and what would you say? Um, I am not afraid to get my hands dirty. Um, probably sometimes too much where they're like, it's okay, <laughs> we got it. Um, it's the dairy like, farmer in you. It is. I don't like, uh, like I'm happy, whatever needs to get done, I'm going to do it. And yeah. if that means moving bike rack, um, or delivering gifts to campers at three in the morning, um, or if that's representing Phoenix Raceway at different events or whatever else, like I I'm going to do that and I'm going to do whatever our team needs and the support that they need to get, um, their goals accomplished. I think, um, again, I'm never going to ask anyone to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And that's, I learned that from my parents. Um, and I, I appreciate that, that about them. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably, they'll tell you, I can be a, a little tough sometimes, but it's, it's tough love. Um, that's right. and, um, I'm always going to be there to like help them. And, uh, I, I like, I want to know what their goals are and I want to, help them accomplish that. And whether that's here at Phoenix Raceway, that's within the sport and that's, or that's in other areas. Like my job as a leader is to continue to grow uh, the members of our team and help them reach their goals because people did that for me. And, um, you know, you got to continue to pay it forward. Uh, before we started recording, we were kind of joking on screen that it's nice to, to talk with each other, but it's just not the same being cramped in a little hauler at Tucson Speedway during a rain delay, because of course, when NASCAR comes to town, it's raining in Tucson, Arizona, of course. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I haven't checked the forecast. I think we're looking good knocking on wood for Phoenix this upcoming weekend. Can you can you confirm, hopefully? Yeah, so far, so good. I'm not going to jinx it, though. Yes. Um, so far, so good. Okay, good to hear. Anyways, I digress. So, yes, uh, Julie was at the K&M Pro Series West Race, as was I. It must have been in 2018 or something at Tucson Speedway. Um, and you being from Wisconsin, Derek Krause and his entire family also being from Wisconsin, you guys have had a really close relationship over the years. So we ended up being trapped together, literally trapped because it was a absolute yeah. monsoon in the desert at Tucson Speedway in the Bill McAnally 16 hauler. So those are some fun times, Julie. <laughs> I know those were fun times. It was, uh, yeah, that was like out of nowhere. All of a sudden a monsoon rolls through, but that's what yeah. happens here. I remember I like I was walking back because I think you were chilling in the back like on the couches with Derek and I think uh Derek kind of gave me a look and he was like yeah come come hang out and I think you were kind of looking at me like uh is he supposed to be here who, who, what's he doing here <laughs> but then we started talking and it was all good from there but I, I remember that day it was so fun it was annoying because made for a really long night and you stayed through it all I remember uh but it made for a long night but it was a fun one it's memories like that that you get at the racetrack right no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I love going to local tracks. Like that's my favorite thing to do is just, again, 
I'm a race fan. So that was a fun mm-hmm. night. Uh, I'm, it, was, it was great to be there. I think Derek took home the trophy, if I remember correctly. I so did, yeah. um, it was fun. And that's my favorite thing to do on race weekend. Like you'll find me in the grandstands after the green flag for a little while. And I'm going to sit and just take it in and be a race fan. That's awesome. Speaking of Derek, um, it was two years ago, I guess, as well before COVID when he clinched the West Championship at Phoenix. And I think was that was your first full right. year as track president, I remember you were kind of watching by the pit box and you were celebrating with the family in victory lane, doing your track president duties, but then also kind of put on your Julie hat and, you know, being close with the family, you were able to share that moment with them. Uh, was that kind of one of your, your favorite moments thus far in your tenure as track president, being able to celebrate Derek's championship? Because I mean, he's still a child. Let's just look at his face. But (laughs) back then he was a real baby, you know? No, it was. That was incredibly special. I've known um, Derek's parents for a really long time. I've known Derek pretty much um, since he was born, I guess. And um, I kept in touch with his parents um, throughout the years. And and yeah, it was it was special. And it was special to do that here at Phoenix Raceway. Uh, I got to be part of it. um, And just to see how I know how hard they've all worked um, and to to see it pay off and to see that pure joy and excitement in his mom and dad's face, his family that were there and and just him um, and Bill. And it was, I'm grateful that it was here and that we got to experience that together because their family lives 10 miles maybe from my parents. So um, like two Two local, small town, Wisconsin. uh, I love it. Yeah. I ask all Wisconsin drivers the same thing. So I'll ask you because maybe you have the answer. What is it about that state that produces really good racing talent? Derek Krause, Sam Mayer. Those are two youngins. You got Matt Kenseth, Johnny Sauter, Paul Menard. The list goes on and on. What is it about Wisconsin? Because besides Road America, which got added back to the Cup Series schedule for the first time in, what, 50 years this year, there's no big-time racetracks in Wisconsin, but the short track scene there is phenomenal. It really is. And honestly, I think that's part of it. Like, uh, you grow up there. Like, I went to races, and I remember when Derek's dad was racing, um, and, you know, there's a lot of opportunity from a short track perspective in Wisconsin to compete. And I think, um, you know, you're, you're trying to make it and you're working on your own car and you're learning a lot about um, what what you need to do to the car to be fast. Old school. It it is. And it's, I mean, to me, that's, that's, what's so special about Wisconsin and um, you know, it's hardworking people that care about one another. Um, I, I love, I love that I'm from, from that state and and still continue to be part of it. Get to go home every day. Every every year at least, and hopefully a few times a year just to see everyone. A little different climate, though, from where you are now. <laughs> it is, I know. <laughs> yes. Just don't forget yeah. to pack your parka. You'll be good. I know, exactly. Yeah. All right, a couple more here, and I'll let you run. The, the West Coast racing scene, I think, is underappreciated, underrated, because a lot of people here on the East Coast, especially in the Charlotte area where NASCAR is focused, they don't know enough about it. They don't know about the Southwest tour. They don't know about the Spears late models. They don't know about the chilly Willie 150, one of the most premier late model races that has the best name out there. Uh, that happens every single winter. Um, they don't know about the legends that happened at Tucson speedway, right? I mean, Kern County could host a truck race tomorrow. It really could. Um, you being out there on the West coast for, I guess, going on three years now, you've only gotten a taste of kind of what the West coast stock car and racing culture in general is 
is like, but can you speak to how important that is and how influential some names that were made here on the West Coast, just to name a couple, Ron Hornaday, Kevin Harvick, Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, how impactful and influential West Coast racing is to the fabric of motorsports in this country? I'm glad you brought it up because that was something I, I really, I was in that same boat. I didn't understand and didn't have that knowledge in, of, in history of racing on the West Coast. Um, and I've learned so much over the last three years um, outside of just the history here at Phoenix Raceway, but just up and down the coast. Uh, Bill McNally has been um, a great uh, teacher for me and, and helping me learn. Um, but yeah, you're right. There are so many great events. There's so many great um, little tracks that are hosting amazing events. You talk about the Chili Willie down in Tucson, um, which is a huge event. And it's, it's fun to get down there. And to be part of that, I think you talk about the names that have um, have made it. I think we're proud of the fact that in Arizona now we have two with Alex Bowman from Tucson and then our Daytona 500 champion, Absolutely. Michael McDowell, which was a really proud moment for all of us um, here at Phoenix Raceway. His, his aunt is actually part of our team here at the track. Nice. And, um, Very cool. Just to be able to welcome him home in uh, March after that Daytona 500 victory and celebrate him. And uh, it was, it was special. So yeah, there's just, there's so much rich history and I don't like, I'm still learning it and there's, there's a lot to learn, um, but it is something that I, I, I didn't know about. And I'm so grateful that now I have the opportunity to learn about. It. Yeah. Uh, for those listening that may not know too much about West Coast racing, just go on Racing Reference and look at K&M Pro Series West races from like the 90s through the mid-2010s. Just the names, you may not have heard of all of them, but look up their stats. Like, they're legit. Mm -hmm. Derek Thorne, he could be like a truck championship contender tomorrow. Ryan Partridge, same thing. There are, there are so many stories and so many great names. So I'm glad that we got the chance to to mention that real quick. Um, I was going to say once the championship weekend is over, do you get the chance to decompress and take a deep breath? But then I was thinking like, well, Phoenix is one of the first few dates of the 2022 season. So there's no rest for you, Julie. No, but that's, it's great. Cause you know, we'll get through uh, championship weekend and uh, take a little bit of a breath, but there's so much positive momentum that leads from November into that oh, March. Yeah, definitely. Weekend that um, we want to capitalize on it. And um, it's our busiest time of year, that November to March timeframe. Um, and then obviously from where we're based, we work really closely with our friends at Auto Club Speedway. So they've got a race mm -hmm. uh, just a couple weeks before us, um, the race at the Coliseum. Um, so a lot of different things and fun things on the horizon here, both at Phoenix Raceway and the West Coast. Yes. As you mentioned, you are so, so busy. You are a woman in high demand. So I so, so appreciate the time today. Last question. The most important question. What should I eat when I get down to Phoenix? I want to try some local cuisine. I have, I have four places that I have to go. Waffle House, In-N-Out, Whataburger, which I've never had, and Portillo's. Yes. Don't hate me. I'm going to those four for sure, but where else should I go? Okay. Oh my goodness. Um, well, Rudy's barbecue is a good local barbecue joint. Um, okay. here Rudy's. In the city. We've got a location right at the racetrack as Perfect. well. So I would definitely uh, spend some time there. Um, and then at the racetrack, we got some pretty great uh, signature food items this time around the Sonoran dog. So you can, you know, but okay. it's hard. There's food scene here around the Valley is tremendous. So yeah, you're, you're going to be your options are endless. Um, and okay. there is a Portillo's now just down the street from the office building here. Don't so tempt me. Far. I'll get on my flight right now. 
I'll be a few days early, but I'll do it. I have to. It must be nice for you too, because Portillo is a Midwestern thing, so you got it right in your backyard now. It is, but you know, honestly, like I'm a Culver's, um, Wisconsin. I've Never had it, it, but never had it. Oh, bad. Um, there was yeah, one like right off the road on Michigan State's campus, and I never was able to have it in my four years. Yeah, no, it's too bad. Well, that, put that one on your list because we've got that okay. out here too. Even though okay. it's Wisconsin company. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's you have plenty of options, but I definitely recommend head over to Rudy's. It, you won't go wrong. Okay, Rudy's, I will put as my fifth must have for this upcoming week in sure. Phoenix. Julie Geezy, this has been such a pleasure. It was so great catching up with you, and I look forward to seeing you this upcoming week, hopefully not trapped in the same hauler because of a rain delay. Let's cross our fingers and knock on wood that that will never happen again. Exactly. No, it's good to see you. We look forward to having you at the event. And we're back, and the dog is not left. Big thank you to Julie for obviously giving me so much time and a huge, huge weekend for her and a busy schedule. And thank you, thank you, thank you to the man, the myth, the legend himself, Matt Humphrey, for helping coordinate that conversation on pretty short notice as well. So your efforts, Matt, are so appreciated. Your time, Julie, is so appreciated. I'm going to have Matt on the show eventually, possibly next year too, so stay tuned for that. But thank you guys both so much for helping and chatting. It was great to catch up with you, Julie. And we'll see you this weekend in Phoenix. i got to get some of that Rudy's barbecue. Let's preview the championship four at Phoenix Raceway. This is it. The Championship Four, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon and evening. Fox Sports 1, NBCSN, and NBC have your coverage from the Valley of the Sun. Let's break each one down one by one. Stats can be found kind of wherever. I'm going to give you some analysis off the dome. All right? Truck Series, Zane Smith, he's hot. Coming off that win that he had at Martinsville, did what he had to do. Matt Crafton, he's a quiet assassin. He doesn't win a lot. But he's always there, running inside the top five, going for his fourth career truck series championship. Knock on wood, I think the dog may be gone, and now there's only a little dog, so we'll see if this holds for the rest of the episode. Ben Rhodes, Matt Crafton's teammate, he's there, he's hungry, he wants it, but he's been quiet ever since he opened up the season with two back-to-back wins. So can he end the season on a high note and bookend it with a win? And John Hunter Nemechek, the obvious pick, right? He's been the dominator all season long. He got in by the skin of his teeth, no thanks to Austin Wayne's self, but now that he is in the championship four, there's no reason why he shouldn't be the favorite. So John Hunter Nemechek, Ben Rhodes, Matt Crafton, and Zane Smith, that is your Truck Series championship four Friday night on FS1. The Xfinity Series, we got Noah Gregson, who's on a big heater as well. It seems like he performs when the ball is in his hands in these big moments. Daniel Hemrick, even though he hasn't won a race, he's still running up front and running well contending for these race victories. I think it's a 209 or 210 race winless streak across all three national series at this point for Hemrick. Can he snap it at the biggest moment of his career? Time will tell. We will find out. Austin Sendrick, he wants another one before he leaves to jump up to the Cup Series. He won the Xfinity Championship last year, won this race last year, won at Phoenix earlier this year. So on paper, you'd probably say the 22 is the favorite, right? For good reason. But my heart and my head tell me it's going to be A.J. Allmendinger. I just think the Dinger is going to get this done. It's going to be one of the really cool redemption stories that we've seen from running for midfield and backmarker cup teams and then getting his shot and then not necessarily squandering it, but that going away and coming back and getting rejuvenated with Colleg Racing. 
I think it'd be an awesome story, and I honestly really just want to see the celebration that he does. <laughs> I mean, we saw at Bristol, he was going nuts when he got wrecked coming across the start-finish line. Could you imagine the tears, the screaming, the energy? If he were to win the championship, that would be nuts. Uh, and his wife, Tara Almendinger, is Miss North Carolina. She's competing in the Miss America pageant, and she was telling me on pit road at Martinsville that if AJ is able to win, and AJ said it afterwards as well, AJ is going to be Mr. America, so I'd like to see that happen. And then last but not least, we have the grand finale, the Cup Series Championship for Kyle Larson, nine wins this season, the obvious dominator of the entire season, but only two wins on ovals with the 750-horsepower package. Could that be his detriment? We will see. Martin Truex Jr., sneaky good at Phoenix, tied for the second most wins this season in the Cup Series, all four of his wins have come on 750 ovals. That could pay dividends at Phoenix on Sunday. Denny Hamlin, he's only got two wins, but he has been the fastest car statistically, according to Motorsports Analytics, on 750 tracks. So that could be a big factor in terms of who we see unload off the truck fast. And by the way, guys, we got practice and we got qualifying for this weekend. So can Chris Gabehart tinker on things to keep that number 11 car as the quickest car on 750 tracks? And of course, we got the defending champ. And now he's happy because the Braves are champs. Chase Elliott won this race one year ago, has run well at Phoenix throughout his career, knows what it takes to win a championship, did it one year ago at this very racetrack. Can he go back to back and become the youngest driver to win multiple championships? Time will tell. I know you want my picks. Even if you don't, I'm going to give them to you. Truck series, I'm going to roll with John Hunter. I think it'd be dumb to abandon the most dominant driver of the series this season. So I think I'm going to roll with the four truck there. And even though I just said that, that's going to go against what I do for the Cup Series. That's a teaser for in about 10 seconds from now. I gave you my pick for the Xfinity Series already. I'm rolling with the dinger. Winner, winner, chicken dinger. I'd love to see AJ get that title just to see the celebration afterwards and the tears that would flow. And for the Cup Series, I'm not going to pick Kyle Larson. I'm not going to pick Chase Elliott. And I am not going to pick Denny Hamlin, which leaves me with Martin Truex Jr. as the 2021 Cup Series champion. I picked him at the start of the playoffs. I'm going to stick with it now. He has the worst odds out of the championship four, according to Caesars, and I think that that championship is ripe for the picking. Even though James Small and Martin Truex Jr. may not have the fastest car for the entire season, practice and qualifying will do him some good. I think they'll be able to tinker on it just enough to get that car where it needs to be to be able to run up front on a consistent basis throughout the entire event. And my gut just tells me that it's going to be Martin Truex Jr. who's lifting that trophy at the end of the day. What do you think? Tweet me your predictions. Try something different for a change. Use the hashtag Victory Lane. Tweet me your predictions for this weekend's championship four for the Truck, Xfinity, and Cup Series. Use the hashtag Victory Lane. Tweet me at Davy Center. And I'll uh, maybe if you get all three right or if you get some right, maybe I'll put you on the show next week and, and say, hey, so-and-so predicted this, and they were right, so you get a shout-out on the show. I wish I had, like, tickets to give away or something, but A, the season's ending, B, I'm a broke boy, C, I'm sponsorless, so you do what you got to do. <laughs> and just as I'm closing out the show, the dog is back. Wonderful. Uh, this is where I usually say, look, that's of the week, and we cue that funky music, white boy. 
But honestly, A, not a whole lot of news and nuggets to drop this week. There is still some silly season news coming out. Notably today, Myatt Snyder got announced to be driving the 31 Xfinity Series car for Jordan Anderson Racing next season. But other than that, there was only some lug nut penalties and Kyle Busch is required to take sensitivity training. Matt Benedetto deactivated his Twitter account because he tried to make light of that situation, which was not really cool. Uh, he's still on Instagram, though, so check him out there if you want. There's still some other stuff coming out about Silly Season, but this week is all about the Championship Four. It's all about Julie Giese, and I want to thank her again for her time. It's all about Phoenix, and it's all about those 12 drivers that have worked tirelessly all season long with their teams to get this opportunity. So we're going to focus on them this week, and we're going to give them their due. Again, I'm in Phoenix. Uh, we got Championship Four Media Day tomorrow as of this recording, but you will probably be listening to this after that happens. And then ARCA and Trucks and Xfinity and Cup will take place all weekend long. I cannot wait to show you guys all the coverage that we're going to do at Front Stretch and Sirius XM from Phoenix Raceway this weekend. Really looking forward to it and thankful for the opportunity to be out here. I'm actually getting a little bit closer to the dog right now because I'm walking back towards my Airbnb. You can probably hear it more clearly now, right? Yep, there it is. Just wanted to make sure that my levels were picking it up. All right, that's enough blabbering for now. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode 132 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you like what you heard here today, do me a favor. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, drop me a line. We'll try to rectify that issue for you. For the dog that has uh, given me fits this episode, and Julie Giese, and of course, Papa Siegel with the Wayback segment, Thank you guys so much for listening to the pod this week and all season long. I will catch you on the flip side where we will talk about the National Series champions. One race to go presented by Credit One Bank, people. See you on the flip side.